0: Thanks for being here. Thanks for worshiping with us. I'm Matthew. I'm one of the pastors. Um, I was at that retreat that Lauren just mentioned, and um, I kind of had this moment where I realized how old I am hanging out with college students. Um, I brought my own pillow and my own blanket. I've never done that before. Greatest, smartest choice I've ever made. at um, fall retreat, but it was a blast. Uh, again, as Lauren said, just a really cool opportunity for our students to get away fantastic teachings, tons of community, lots of fun, and we are really truly excited for what God's going to do to build off of that uh, with our students. So um, I, I remember changing topics uh, when Tiffany got pregnant with, with Mason, our first. I remember thinking, like, I just can't wait till he gets older. So Tiffany has kind of been more of, like, the love the babies, just give me the babies, I want to hold the babies. And I was the one from, like, the moment she got pregnant for, like, can we just, like, I can't wait for teenage years. I can't wait to talk about the real stuff, the hard stuff, right? My mind just sort of instinctively went 10 years ahead, and I imagined all the conversations I would get to have with my kids and how excited I was. Um, And now that I'm on the edge of that, I'm looking up at my 12-year-old son up there, and I have a 10-year-old as well, so two in double digits and then two more after that, I kind of, you know, and you can imagine what I'm about to say, right, can we please just go back to the diapers? Like, can we please, 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 Lord, car seats, diapers, spit up, I want all of it back. Um, And that is true some of the time, but I exaggerate that a little bit because part of me thinks, like, I've been in ministry now for almost 20 years, and I've been trying to disciple and mentor and influence young people for two decades to, to walk in the way of Jesus, to be made more like him. And, and I'm, just, I'm just ready to do it for my kids. <laughs> I'm ready to, to do that for my own kids as they sort of step closer and closer into adulthood. And of course, Tiffany and I, we've been, been doing that from the start. I remember the first time that our kids asked, like, where, where did we come from? Um, and, you know, you give the classic answer, to like a five-year-old-ish, whenever that, that question comes, all of our kids have asked it, and you say, well, God God made you. And then they press a little further, right? And they're like, well, yeah, but, but how did God put me in mom's belly? And then you start wiggling a little more, and you're like, well, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of a miracle, actually. Um, and that seems to work for kids. They're like, okay, cool, checks out. It's a miracle. Um, moving on. Crisis averted. That for us was years ago now now our older kids know where babies come from we've had all of those conversations with them we're reading with them books now about the dangers of pornography and we're trying to instill in them this belief that sex is a good thing that sex is something that god made for human flourishing for for joy for intimacy and and we're not trying to like trash it we're not trying to make it this this evil thing or this dirty thing. We're trying to, to ride this line, right, of like, it is a good thing. There's goodness in it, and yet it has to be treated with the utmost respect, and there has to be boundaries put around it. So in a way, I feel like I'm, I'm living my dream. I'm talking to my kids about the things that really matter. and God is inviting Tiffany and I to light for them the path of wisdom. But if I'm honest, I, don't, I think I'm just now realizing how naive I was as a new dad, unaware of the weightiness of this task. And at times, honestly, I can just get pretty fearful. Feels like an impossible task, right? Our kids are growing up in a, in a time that seems like it's more saturated with sex and sexuality than, than my own, than any of the generations before. It feels like TV commercials after 7 p.m. flash scenes of what is essentially soft pornography. Magazines at the grocery store checkout are littered with sexual headlines and big, bold font. Sexually explicit content is just a click away on the internet. Pornography use and addiction, particularly among men, is staggeringly high. Staggeringly high. Maybe 80, 90%. And I can start to think that maybe we're in some kind of new world, some sort of like extra ungodly world that's never existed before. Like we just recently started making up these new ways of doing evil with sex and with our bodies, but that's actually just not true. It's just patently untrue. We're in this series in 1 Corinthians, and if you know, like last week we were talking about the struggle within the church of uh, an instance of incest. And, and, and we're looking at this early church and the ways in which they tried to live faithful to Jesus, faithful to the Word of God in a super secular and progressive, a very unChristian culture. Today, we're going to talk about their struggle to honor God with their bodies. And okay, guys, I, I know you did not wake up today and, and think, man, I just can't wait to talk about sex at church. (laughs) Like, yeah, let's do that. That's fun. That sounds like a cool thing. It's always an uncomfortable topic, but then you put it in the context of a Sunday morning church service, and it just gets really extra awkward. I know that. And yet, A, it's where the passage takes us. And here in this church where the scriptures go, we believe we have to go. And number two, it's just the water that we swim in. The world that we live in is just full, is obsessed with sex. Sex. And so I want to start by sort of laying the land of ancient Corinth, this city to which Paul is writing, and I want to dispel this myth that somehow our world is worse. Here's Corinth in a snapshot. Prostitution was legal. Prostitution was completely normal. Men, we're told, would have visited uh, prostitutes almost daily. Nobody w- would have looked down upon a man for doing that. There were uh, adults having sex with children. There were men sleeping with their mothers-in-law. That was last week's passage, if you were here. Uh, You heard us teach on that. There was sex in religious temples to pagan gods. So the way that you did your right worship, the way that you served this pagan god, was you went to a temple and you engaged in all sorts of sexual debauchery in order to offer your right worship. Sexual brokenness and sexual sin have existed since the fall of humanity. It changes shape, it changes form over the generations, but the reality and the prevalence have always remained. And what Paul does in this section that we're going to cover today is he casts a vision for why and what it would look like for us to honor God with our bodies. A vision for how to live bodily faithful bodily faithful to Jesus in this anything-goes go- kind of culture. He is specifically going to address the topic of men sleeping with prostitutes, and you may think, okay, sweet, not a struggle of mine. Awesome, I can tune out, but, but hold on. What Paul does here, as he so often does masterfully, is he zooms out. He takes this one particular issue, and he sets it within this larger theology, and that's what I'm excited for us to talk about. I believe that the Spirit of God, no matter where you're at in, in this area of your life, whether it's a struggle every day, whether it's something you feel like you're walking in victory, I think the Spirit of God has something to say to every single one of us in this passage. Okay? So, um, again, that was the world of Corinth. I've sort of talked a little bit about the world that we live in, but let me just say a bit more. The world that, we're live in, that we live in tells us, right, that our identity, our value, and our worth is in our romantic and in our sexual lives. We're discipled in this culture to celebrate sexual conquest, particularly among young men. We are discipled to celebrate it as a conquest. We are taught that our deepest insecurities, that our deepest longings, the things that we struggle to believe about ourselves, those wounds those places that are really sensitive, that if we engage in sexual behavior, that it will make those things go away, that it will somehow free us. We're discipled to believe that in our culture. And before I even read the passage, I feel like I need to say this. We are all broken in this area. We are all broken in some way, shape, or form. We are all wounded. We're all a little rebellious. We're all a little confused. There aren't many people that I know who are really crushing it in this area, at least the kind of purity that Jesus envisions for us. And so we welcome, and I think we ought to want conviction. We want the Spirit of God to point things out in us and to move us to repentance, but at the same time, shame and accusation have no place. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. Shame has no place. And even as you hear what's going to be shared here, what Paul says to Corinthians, there may be this temptation, even as you sit in your seat, to have shame and guilt build up inside of you, I want you to hear, and I hope that it comes across, that God wants to meet us, that his mercy is in endless supply, and that's actually what can change us. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 20. Or sorry, verse 12, and we're going to go to 20. Here's what Paul says. He starts by saying kind of what they believed in Corinth. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, And the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit Another cultural reality for us to point out is that almost everyone who would have heard this uh, letter from Paul would have been married. (laughs) So back in the day, they got married really young, like strangely young, super weird to us, but they were married, right? So Paul assumes that most of his listeners are married. Their sexual impurity is happening amongst married people, and again, he's, he's, he's really camping out on the men who are visiting prostitutes. And I just want to make this point that the being married and the freedoms that come with that, the ability to have intimacy with your spouse, does not make the struggle for purity go away. Right? If you think I just got to, if you're single and you're like, I just got to find a spouse. Once I find a spouse, this is all going to go away. It's going to be great. It's not actually true. The people that Paul is writing to were married. Could do the things that married couples can do, so check out what Paul does. He sort of sets up this back and forth debate. He quotes the sound bites of Corinthian culture, and then he counters it with biblical truth. I made this little chart for us. I don't know, maybe. It'll, oh, look, there it is. Okay, um, so Corinthian culture here, Paul's response over here. So he's kind of setting up almost like this this little debate uh, in a literary fashion. Uh, and so over here is everything that the Corinthians said, and then here's re- his response. So he starts with. Uh, this mantra, this soundbite, something that would have been said all through Corinth, which is basically like, I can do whatever I want. I have the right to do whatever I want. But then he counters it, and he says, no, but not everything is beneficial. He repeats it again, and then he says, but I will not be mastered by anything. We don't have time for this. This is a whole other sermon. I wish I could preach it. I don't have time, but there is so much deep wisdom in that one line right there. I will not be mastered by anything. Freedom to do whatever we want always becomes a form of slavery. Freedom to do whatever we want in our broken, sinful, fractured, that will always lead us to a form of slavery. And he's hinting at that when he uses this language of not being mastered. He goes on, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, which actually, in context, what he's saying is sex for the body and the body for sex. And Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not how it works. The body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Let's take a closer look at this language of food for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's a shorthand way, again, of saying that like, just when you feel the urge to eat, just when you experience hunger, you go and you eat a meal. When you feel the desire for sexual activity, you go and you get it. The desire for sex is no different than the desire for food, than the feeling of hunger. And just like no one would question your wanting of food, no one would question your hunger for sex. They're the same thing. It's nothing more than a human need, a human urge. And so the Corinthian men, when they would experience that desire, they would go and they would unite themselves with a prostitute. And for us today, what do we do? Well, if you're single, you, you go to your boyfriend, you go to your girlfriend. If you're single or you're married, you use pornography, you, you use sexual fantasy, right? It's even possible in a marriage relationship for, to use sex for nothing more than to feed our own selfishness and self-centeredness. But there's actually something, I think, more sinister and more scary going on in Corinth. Did you notice the line, but the Lord will destroy them both? That sounds like something that that the, that would be biblical wisdom that sounds like it would be on the right side of the column right paul's response it's actually not he's quoting what is the dominant theology in corinth that is their theology it's their spirituality that's not about god's vengeance that is about the belief in the city their pagan theology told them that it was okay to treat sex in this way see for them their bodies did not matter in, their, in the end, their bodies would rot. Your body is not spiritual. Your body is not eternal. And so go ahead and just do whatever you want to do with it. If there was some kind of afterlife, it would be disembodied. They would become, if they believed in it in Corinth, some sort of like spirit floating around in the clouds for all of eternity. And Paul is calling out that belief as the root of all of their sin. If you don't believe that your bodies matter, if you you don't believe that our bodies matter, then why would you care how you use them? If they don't matter eternally, right? For them, it was possible just to believe all the right things in their mind and then do whatever they want with their body. Paul says, no. By his power, God raised Jesus from the dead, and he will raise us. Also, we read this passage, and we think, why on earth is he referencing the resurrection when he's talking about sexual purity? Like, weird place to be talking about the resurrection, Paul, except that is actually not, right? Because how we see sex is ultimately the result of how we see our bodies. How we approach this whole topic is, at the end of the day, the result of how we understand our bodies, our physicality. And if we believe, that we will rise with a body, that we will live forever with a body, with your body in a glorified state, we will honor our bodies. We will respect. We will not abuse our bodies. So their theology and their culture told them that it was okay. It makes me wonder, what's the dominant kind of operating theology in our culture when it comes to sex and sexuality? What are the sound bites of American culture in 2022? Here's my best guess. Nobody's getting hurt. Like, what's the big deal? This is a victimless thing. Like, nobody is getting hurt. Or, I really need to know this person sexually before I can open up to them emotionally. I need to to see what they're like in that place before I'll really open up and give them more of my heart. We love each other. This is maybe the most common, right? We love each other, and that's all that matters, who are you to say what we can and can't do with our bodies? What about inside the church? What about within? Like, is there is there a is there kind of an operating theology or is there a belief system that rules even amongst Christians? Something that tells us that we don't have to be so serious about this area. Like we can we can loosen up a little bit. We don't have to just like do it this way. It's fine, right? Here's one, it's fine. As long as we're not actually having sex. We can push the limits. We can push the boundaries. We can have some fun. We just can't quite go all the way. Or what about this? It's just an image on a screen. It's not real. It's just an image on screen. Or how about this? I'm married, so my spouse has to meet my needs. I'm married, so my spouse has to meet my needs. And if they don't, it's on them if I look around. Has that crept into the church? Has a little bit of that made its way into here? See, we're caught between these narratives, right? And the big question this narrative of, like, you know what, do what you want, these operating theologies, and then we read Paul here setting forth this amazing, beautiful vision of how to use our bodies. And I think the question, right, what does God want to say to us in the midst of all of this? The exact same thing. (laughs) that he said to the Corinthians two millennia ago, right? I just want to say this, by the way, because we're a church full of a bunch of young people, and I know, like, I'm going to leave here, and I'm going to go on campus, and I'm going to talk to a couple hundred of mostly, almost entirely single 20-year-olds and 18- and 19-year-olds. Um, there's less of you in, in this, but let me just say this. If you're, if you're single and you're young, do you know what's being asked of you? Like, have you, have you thought about it? Most of you won't get married until you're in your mid 20s, late 20s, early 30s. You hit puberty at what, age 11, 12, 13? I know, you didn't think you'd hear the word puberty at church. Um, if you're a girl, if you're a guy, you hit puberty at like what, 18, 19? I don't know. Um, <laughs> you do the math. It's like a decade. If you get married, that's a decade. Or more of this call to live sexually pure. It's an excruciatingly long time. I think we're really desperate to hear from God. What does he want to say to us here and now? And here's where it gets really good, you guys, because Paul does not give the Corinthians a list of what they can and can't do. He doesn't list what's in bounds and what's out of bounds. He 100% could have. He would have been well within his right to do it, but he chose not to. God did not want him to do that. So he doesn't give them a list. Instead, what he gives them are deep theological truths about who they are in relation to God. See, I think most of us, some of us, we want the list, we want the rules. God, just tell me what I can and I can't do with my body. And here's my question. Is it possible that we want the rules so that we can find all the ways around them? Is that maybe something of what's happening, right? Tell me the rules so I can invent some sort of way of doing what I actually want to do without actually breaking the rule. See, with rules, we tend to either get super legalistic or we find ways around it. Neither of them are the path to life and abundance. God wants to give us stuff that goes down deep inside of us and transforms how we see speaks to our motivations and our desires, something that reframes and reshapes and redefines the whole thing. He so often does that. So it's common, especially, you know, when I'm, you know, in an hour when I'm talking to college students to, to really kind of wrestle with the question, well, how far is too far? What can I do? Is this okay? Can I do this thing? Can I do that thing? Can I look at this thing? And I want to be careful not to mock those questions the sincerity that may lie behind those questions, but the reality is that God just doesn't answer them. He doesn't give us the list. Here's what he says in verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. He says two things. Number one, God dwells in your body, and two, God owns your body. When I think about our bodies being a temple of God, I think of Israel's temple, right? If you read the Old Testament books that, that, that list with insane detail how the temple is to be constructed, no, you haven't, because none of us like reading those, um, <laughs> right? It's okay, we can admit it. They bore us to death, because we're like, I don't, who cares? Like, that's a long time ago. Um, I get it. They go on and on and on and on about the measurements and the materials with precise detail. Why? Because it's the place that God is going to dwell among his people. It's the place that heaven and earth meet and collide. It's the one and the only place where it happens and where God dwells matters. The greatest concern is placed upon that place. It is not insignificant. It is the most significant place on earth. You see what Paul is doing here, right? It was downright radical for his hearers to listen to this. It's been lost on us, I think, because we don't live with the actual memory of the temple. He is saying, you and your body, your body is now the place that God dwells. You, in your bodily form, is the place that God has chosen now to take up his residence. You now are the place that heaven and earth meet. Jesus died on the cross. He rose victorious. The curtain in the temple was torn. God's presence, God's dwelling is now on the loose. It's not just in this one place. He lives in all who call him king, right? You and I, in our embodied personhood, are the place God comes to live. And do you see what that does to this entire topic of sexual purity? It can never, ever be just about following some sort of moral code. I do not want my kids to just blindly follow a moral code, a list. I want them to see this. I want them to grasp this, that you are the place that God comes to live. And where God lives is so sacred. It so must be honored, right? This, this, This goes deeper. It transforms our thinking, how we view dating and marriage and sex and one another and how we view our bodies. God dwells in us and he has purchased us at the price of his own son. We do not lay claim to our own bodies. And so we cannot do just whatever we want with them, does God hate sex then? In the garden, when it first happened, was he like, whoa, 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 how did they figure that out? What, the, what is happening? Stop that. Is it some sort of just like, I don't know, I, you got to put humor in this teaching like this, guys. I mean, it's just like, there's no other way to do it. Okay. Is it some sort of like kind of dirty but necessary means of procreation? Absolutely not. Listen to this scholar on Corinthians. His name is Andrew Thistleton. He says, far from devaluing sex, Paul here in this passage is doing the very opposite. He is perceiving the sexual act as one of self-commitment, which deeply involves the entire person, not merely bodily body parts. Paul is saying that sex is meant by God to be the full giving of one's entire self to the one to whom you belong. The full giving of one's entire self to the one to whom you belong. Where is he basing that claim? Look at verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. He goes all the way back to Genesis. He goes all the way back to the very beginning of the story where we hear this language of the two becoming one flesh. And he is not talking just about body parts. He's talking about being united in a way that goes way beyond that. He's talking about a deep spiritual, emotional, physical oneness that touches every aspect of your life. He uses the Greek word soma here, and that word has built into it not just body parts, it's your entire embodied personhood, your desires, your emotions, your spirituality, your wants, your dreams, your sense of calling, all of it. It's your embodied personhood, one flesh. This language of one flesh speaks to a deep spiritual oneness. It's all of yourself being given to all of another. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, one of my favorites, wrote this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Sex was God's invented way for you to give yourself to someone so deeply that it results in personal transformation. You were not made to have physical oneness without whole life oneness. You were not made to get physically naked and vulnerable without becoming vulnerable in your whole life without surrendering your independence to your spouse. As we read this passage, as we look through all of the scriptures, beginning to end, it becomes very clear that sex only makes sense in the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman. That's the only place it makes sense. It's not that God hates sex. It's not about that at all. It's that sex is so profound, it is so powerful that it must be kept within this boundary. It must be kept in this commitment, this covenant to love and to lay down your life for the other until the day you die. It just doesn't make sense to take it out of this call for deep spiritual oneness. Our culture says what? It's just physical. You can, you can do that. You can have sex. You can engage in all sorts of sexual activity, but you can keep your independence. You can do it without being absolutely fully committed to another person. But here's the tragic irony of this so-called freedom. Sex cannot create the deep love and affirmation we are looking for. It cannot create it on its own. It can only give expression to a commitment, to a covenant that has already been made, that already exists. That's why a prostitute, that's why a boyfriend or a girlfriend or an image on a screen or a fantasy in your mind will never satisfy you. If you're married, that's why a self-centered view of sex dishonors not only your spouse, but the God who called you into covenant with them and who entrusted you with this precious gift of intimacy. When we go to those places and we go to those people to, and we use sex to satify, satisfy us, we We turn inward, and we make it all about ourselves. We are undoing ourselves. We are deforming ourselves. We are becoming the kind of people that God never intended us to be. We're moving away from that. And that's why Paul ends his section with this command to flee. Like, run. (laughs) Like, get out of town. Nobody just sort of stumbles into purity. Like, no one's just like, I mean, maybe it's possible. I haven't met them yet. Like, yeah, nope, never had the thought in my life. You know, Jesus says, if you look upon a woman like, what? I, I, what is that like? I don't, tell me more about that. Never experienced it. We don't just stumble into it. Like, it takes a pursuit. We have to flee. And so I just want to end with three practical ways that we can sort of work out this big theology of sex, that our bodies are not our own, that God dwells in our bodies. Here's, here's the first of three. I think if we're going to do this, if we're going to flee, we, were, we will need to shamelessly share our desire for sexual intimacy and the deeper union it expresses. Now, that may come as a surprise to you. The single people in the room are like, wait, I'm allowed to I can, I can do that? <laughs> I, can, I can talk about the desire for that? Absolutely. If you're single, talk about it. Call it good. Name it. I know that that might seem counterintuitive, and you think, well, maybe that will give me license. Maybe I'll speak it into existence, and I'll start to dishonor God with my body. I think it does the opposite. It maintains high honor and deep respect for sex, right? Right? I think sometimes in the church, we have swung the pendulum to a really unbiblical place. And we've told young people that it's wrong, that it's dirty. And what, what, do you, what does a young person do? Like, they just gravitate toward it. I think that what we ought to do is celebrate it. And I'm not just saying that as Matthew McClure. I think the scriptures celebrate it. And so we ought to as well. If you're married, I think you'll choose to see sex as an expression of the call to be one with your spouse in all of life. Are you passionately pursuing the heart of your spouse? Are you bearing their burdens? Are you leading, loving, serving, honoring them in every aspect of your life? Does your, listen to this, does your physical intimacy give expression to an emotional, spiritual, whole life intimacy? Or has it become something selfish? Second, I think we will ask our friends to help us live wildly countercultural, and we will confess when we fail. We need people to walk with us in this, right? I have never met a person who's walked in victory over sexual temptation who doesn't have people next to them, rooting for them, cheering them on, admonishing them when they fall, reminding them of God's mercy, pouring out God's grace over them. Do you open up about this area of your life? I know it's hard. I know there's all sorts of fear. There's there's sometimes deep shame and guilt, but when we give voice to it, when we bring it out into the light, God runs to us. He loves to pour out his mercy for us. And if you're married, temptation is everywhere for you too, right? And the damage that can be done when we go to these places is, is enormous for our spouses. We have to invite people into this area of our life. Here's something that I do. Um... I just stole this from someone way godlier than me. Um, (laughs) As with all of my spiritual formation, I just copy what I see other people doing. But when I travel, like, for work or I'm going to be gone at a conference or whatever, I I go to a friend, I I go to a friend, and I say, hey, when I get back, or even while I'm there, would you ask me if I went looking for anything on the internet, on the TV? Like, just ask me. Please, please ask me. And I feel like, it, and that's not just for that. Like, I have people in my life that are asking me, pressing into this area to my life, in, in my life all the time. But that's one example of, like, how to flee, how it has to be active. It can't just be this kind of passive thing. Third thing, we will trust that marital oneness is a shadow of a deeper union that we can have with God now. Any one of us, single or married, we have the opportunity to have deep union with God there's nothing that I have, there's nothing that I can give my wife, no support, no love, no tenderness, no grace, that comes anywhere near what God himself can do. It is my privilege and my responsibility to imitate him as best as I can, but only he does it perfectly, only he knows the depths of her heart. God is the great pursuer of our hearts. He is the winsome initiator. He draws us into deep relationship with him, and marriage and sex, at its best, is only ever a shadow of that kind of depth that we can have with him. What we're really after is union with God. Let me end with this. You were bought at a price, and there's for sure a weight to that. There's a sobering reality to that, that it cost the life of the eternal Son of God, the perfect one, that he gave himself, that he willingly went to the cross to die for your sin and my sin and the sin of this world. It cost him his life. But please don't forget this. He did it because he wanted to. He did not purchase you reluctantly. He did not purchase you begrudgingly. He purchased you because he wants you, because he calls you his beloved. Because even when we fail, and even when we screw up in this area, he is not repulsed by us. He moves toward us. And he wants to pour out his grace and his mercy, and that mercy is actually what changes us. It's actually what leads us to life and abundance and purity. May you experience his kindness and his love, even as we worship now. Would you pray with me?